You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Hi, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of The Bible for Normal People. And our topic is the Holy Spirit and the Holy Bible with our guest, Sarah Bessie. Sarah is known to many of you, I'm sure. She's a popular speaker and has written two wonderful books, Jesus Feminist and her more recent book came out of a 2015 called Out of Sorts, and it's her own biography of an evolving faith. We went on, on quite the journey with Sarah. It was a fun conversation talking about the Holy Spirit, talking about the Bible, maybe a little bit of the tension between those, also how they connect, and, and surprising conversation about parenting and, and navigating how to raise our kids in, in the midst of this, these evolutions, in the midst of these deconstructions of our own faith. So, good conversation. Yeah, and Sarah has a lot of experience and a lot of wisdom, and she said a few things that sort of maybe stop and think differently about stuff. And she's very articulate, and her books are, like, really good. I just love them because they're thoughtful, and, and there's a lot of energy. And I hope you'll enjoy this episode. I'm sure you will. Yeah, and she's Canadian, so it's just yes. fun to hear her talk. Apparently, there is a Western Canada. I did not know that. I asked that on the podcast. All that and more. Stay tuned. Raising children in the faith for me has become a realization that it's more caught than taught, that they see how I live, they see how I interact with scripture, they see how I worship, they see how we engage with justice in the world, we see how we live our faith, how we embody it, how we pray for people, how we speak about them, how we are within our home and our family, and then that creates and shapes how then they ask questions or what they do or what they interact with and even what deeply matters to them. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I, I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com, promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com, promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com, promo code normal people. Well, hello, Sarah. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. So we want to get started in a way that we, we often start here on the podcast, and that's just to give us a little bit of context and background for your story and how it intersects with the Bible and faith. Oh, sure. Well, I'm not sure if you maybe have someone from my background on the, the podcast yet. I've been listening for a while, but I don't remember ever hearing from anyone who came from the Word of Faith prosperity movement. But that's my background. That's how I was introduced to the Bible. <laughs> Can you explain what that is briefly? Yeah, sure. So, my parents are first-generation Christians. I am Canadian, grew up in Western Canada, and I mean, every church in our neighborhood was empty. There's a Western Canada? <laughs> there is. There's it's, one that's, that's a big country I hear. outside of Toronto. Okay. <laughs> We didn't know anybody who was a Christian or, I mean, if there were any, I, I didn't know them or I didn't know that they were. And so, when my parents came to faith, it was kind of a, a cooperative thing between a lot of different people. There was a Mennonite family that moved in across the back alley, and then there was a pastor who moved in next door, and we'd never met a pastor in the wild before, so that was very exciting. 
and then a Presbyterian minister that had been connected to the church that had married my parents. And so, just all these different, you know, kind of points of, and now I kind of laugh looking back on it. If I had, we had this deeply charismatic, not Pentecostal-ish, but very deconstructed, like we would have church and community centers, not in church. We would have, we would meet at the leisure center, people's basements, you know, sort of, sort of kind of church. And then we had the Presbyterians and we had the Mennonites. And my parents found themselves really being introduced to faith through what we would call the Word of Faith movement, which was kind of this really strongly centered the Bible, but not like a fundamentalist or an evangelical kind of way, but more in the sense of your words matter and that scripture is literally true and every single word of it is exactly for you. And in a lot of ways, there was some beauty to that. There were some some aspects of how I was introduced to Scripture that meant that I had, you know, a high, a really high view of Scripture, really loved the Bible with my whole heart, and even some tenderness to it as well. I mean, just in terms of how God even met us in our innocence and in our sometimes ignorance and in our best hopes in ways that I can't even explain now, you know, years and years later. But then at the same time, there was obviously some shadow sides to that where it would turn into the whole blab it and grab it, name it and claim it sort of stuff, really high emphasis on God wanting you to prosper. And when I first came to faith, it was not quite as overrealized, perhaps, as it is nowadays. I look at now the prosperity and word of faith movement, and it seems like it's gotten super excessive. But at the time, back in the early 80s and, and mid-80s, it felt a lot more to us like it was things like prospering in your mind and in your health and in your families and, and having a, a good path to walk and understanding how to build a life. And so, there were a lot of really great people and good experiences there, but at the same time, my view of the Bible ended up filtering really through this thing of promises. What are the promises of God? How can you activate the promises of God? Are you speaking the Word? You know, is the Word working in your life? You know, that kind of language. And and so, that took some time to unlearn for sure. Would that be like prayer of Jabez? Similar. Yeah, similar. Very similar. Um, If it's any indication, I went to Earl Roberts University. Oh, okay. <laughs> so that's, that might be an indicator as well. But yeah, it was, it's something that even now I look back on with some mixed feelings. Like there was some really good stuff and great people and a lot of things that were a gift to me in that tradition. But at the same time, my view of the Bible was very, it's your answer book, right? It's your answer book for everything. Right. So how is that, how has that evolved? So, bring us up kind of to, to current day with, with your story and your relationship with the Bible. Well, sure. I mean, I think that my relationship with the Bible really began to shift even at a, at a young age because I had grown up in a home that deeply loved Scripture. I mean, one of my earliest memories of my parents coming to faith, I was about the age of my own children now. Um, one of my earliest memories of them coming to faith was like even my mom sitting in the corner of our couch with the book of John and just weeping over it like it was a love letter. Like it was just so deeply meaningful to us as a family and just really changed how we spoke and how we structured our life and the things that we valued, the things that were important to us. And I'm, I'm deeply grateful for that. But at the same time, I think probably later in my life, I began to feel like things weren't quite adding up the way that I had been taught. And then that, of course, began this almost this thicket of things to deconstruct. And one of the big things that I felt kind of launched me into a season of whether you want to call it wilderness or deconstruction or whatever else, I mean, there was probably a thicket of things there, issues around women and around the church and around, you know, signs and wonders is a big thing in my background. And 
scripture, how we read scripture, all those different types of things. But I think what ultimately ended up completely having me rethink, re-engage, and even walk away for a time from scripture was really grief. My husband and I had suffered a number of miscarriages before having our children that we have now and even during that process. And the experience of losing children showed me the poverty of my view of scripture. My relationship with suffering, my relationship with lament, what I really thought about healing, what I really thought about how the Bible, quote unquote, works. And that threshold was definitely that the answers I'd been told to expect and that I thought would always be there just simply disintegrated. It was like steam on a mirror. It just disappeared. All the answers, all the things I knew to do, all the things that I had been promised, all the ways that this was supposed to go disappeared. And I think like a lot of people who find themselves as part of that company of the people who have unanswered prayers or whose lives don't line up with the way that it's supposed to work, you end up feeling like there's no place for you. There's, there's no place for you with reading the Bible like this anymore. So, then what's the Bible? And then that is a, a definitely an embarking point. Sarah, take me back a second. You, you mentioned earlier the experience of your mother on the couch reading John and just weeping. And I imagine that can have an impact on a child, obviously, you know, seeing that. But then you begin this process of deconstruction and evolving, whatever word we want to attach to it. I mean, does that, how do you connect those two things? Because, you know, was that experience authentic? Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Yes. I mean, how do you process that? I mean, do you think that what your mother was experiencing was, was a true experience of God? Or do you like, do you have doubts about that? Or how does that work for you? Because that's, I mean, I, I'm asking that question for this reason. I get this question a lot from people who had an experience of God based on a certain way of understanding the Bible 20 years ago. They don't think that way anymore. And now they're saying, was that experience genuine or was I making it up? Yeah, that is a really great question. I, I don't know if I've ever been asked that question before, but I do believe that my mother's experience was deeply authentic because it was transformative. If it had simply been an emotional response, I don't know that I would have seen the complete transformation in her life and in my, my father's life and even in our family and how it just reset us on such a different path of, of honestly, of wholeness. And so, I'm, I think that even that experience of knowing it was real for her made it even more bitter when it wasn't for me, if that makes yes. sense. It like, there was this sense. sense of... It's so real and so transformative, and it works, and it has done all this thing for you, and yet not for me. And so, then, does that mean there's something fundamentally wrong with me? And my faith tradition would say yes, that there was something fundamentally wrong with it. Sarah, that is such a common experience of Christians that, you know, Jared and I know, and I'm sure you know as well, that if you can't reproduce other people's experiences, there's something wrong with you. But I guess maybe you've been transformed differently. Yeah, I think so. I think that there's this sense of, because I, because the, our way of reading scripture and our way of reading and telling these stories so deeply centers the goodness of God, which is something I'm grateful for, to be honest now from this standpoint, because I'm not someone who's had to undo a lot of baggage around an angry, judgmental God who's out to, you know, get you or whatever. And I could insert a lot of jokes about famous preachers, but I won't. So. <laughs> <laughs> But instead, this fundamental view of seeing the goodness of God, the abundance of God, the peace of God, the wholeness of God, meant then that the one who wasn't holding up their end of the bargain was probably you. Mm. And so, then that becomes this sense of shame or guilt. 
If your prayers aren't being answered, it's not because God doesn't want to. It's not because Scripture is not at fault. God's never, you know, a man that should lie, quote unquote. And so, then you're left with really just the sense of, well, then I failed. I lack faith or I didn't know how to do it right or there's something wrong with me and how I'm doing it. And so, then that becomes even the jump off point of saying, well, if that's the case, then your, your options are either to, to walk away entirely or just burn it down or even double down, right? Just kind of be in the sense of like, well, it does work. I'm going to do it harder and I'm going to do more. <laughs> I'm going to, you know, do all the things right and tick all the boxes that work for everybody else. But instead, I think that there's that option or, or pardon me, that opportunity to, well, maybe we're not reading it right. And maybe, maybe I've had it wrong this whole time. Maybe it's not either one of these things. Maybe it's not God or me. Maybe it's how I've understood this. And, uh, and that was both scary and deeply liberating at the same time. Yeah, Sarah, can you, because I, I think similar, similar backgrounds, I, I grew up in a charismatic background. It sounds oh, like a, a similar... I'm so glad, Jeremy. Yeah. I hardly ever talk to other people who are... Who are yeah, my, my grandmother's actually a, a Native American itinerant charismatic preacher. So oh, that makes, just made my whole day. <laughs> glad to hear that. So, so I, I have this question because maybe it sounds like your journey and your evolving faith was different than mine in that I, I kind of went through this deconstructive phase through Presbyterianism where I kind of lost the charismatic edge or, or part of my theology kind of on the way to this other space. So, my question is kind of given your journey to date, kind of what's your relationship right now with the Spirit of God and the Bible? Because for me, it was, I don't mean to offend my Presbyterian friends, but it sort yeah. of was like the, the Spirit of God was sort of taken out of it, and it became this analytical tradition where you analyze the text, and that you kind of put the quarters in the right way and push the right buttons, and the right answers will always come out because we have the right construct, and it's very scientific. And so, I kind of, my evolving faith was really deconstructing that rather than that childhood faith of, of charismatic faith and, and more of a mysticism and a, and a belief in the Spirit of God kind of working through these things. So, I'm curious where your relationship with the Spirit has gone as your relationship with the Bible has evolved. This is this is a question that I, I would not have anticipated answering this way about 10 or 15 years ago. And that is that the further I got into both deconstruction and reconstruction, the more deeply charismatic I became in a, in a way that I, I never would have expected. And in a way of, I don't, I don't love the word mysticism a, a lot. It feels kind of far away from how rooted the Holy Spirit feels in my life and how even a lot of the practices of, you know, churches that we, you know, would maybe label charismatic or wanting to offend everybody, spirit-filled churches, you know, whatever, those practices and those things have become even more meaningful to me now that I've had a return to it. Because I left church for a long time during all of this. I, I walked away from intentional community and from reading the Bible the way that I'd always been taught to read the Bible and, and understanding these things. And I honestly thought I'd probably never return. And then when I did, I kind of returned through this side door of Anglicanism but with a healthy dose of like anti-institutionalism that like I liked the stuff of, of Anglicanism, but I did not like the church and I did not like, you know, the, the way that things were kind of done. And then it was really just surprising to me how deeply I reconnected with not only scripture, but even with the people who first built the edifices that I had to tear down and begin to reconstruct on. So, I mean, I didn't... <laughs> 
it's sometimes one of those things that I, I don't really even know how to talk about very clearly with people sometimes, but it is something that has been deeply transformative and, and is a real gift to receive, I feel, and to work within. I think one of the things that ends up happening is you end up feeling like you belong kind of nowhere because I want wanted all of it, right? I wanted to be able to, my way of reading the Bible is very different than a lot of my charismatic brothers and sisters. And yet, I'm not ready to surrender that either. I still speak in tongues. I still believe in healing. I still, I, I want to sing all the Jesus is my boyfriend songs and wave flags and do all that stuff. I love, <laughs> I love all of it, right? And so, and even part of that has been the emotion and the depth of the spirit that has been restored to me was something I'd never thought I'd reclaim about the Bible. And so, even that was a, a huge gift to me. I'm still probably that person that my mom was. Like, I'm the person who's weepy over the Bible which is funny when I read it in a completely different way. And yet I find it so deeply moving and I feel like I, I encounter the Holy Spirit so deeply and scripture deeply shapes my life. And yet that wildness that exists in, in that is something that I love too, that it breathes outside of, this, uh, outside of that as well. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S. They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you're in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you, for service, and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for All People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. I just really appreciate the 
uh, yeah, the emotion you still bring and the passion you still bring for your faith and, and your understanding. So, I, it was just really well put. I appreciate that. Well, thank you. You know, it's it can be a little bit alienating, I know, for for some. And and also, I'm, I'm always hyper aware of the fact that there's such abuses and baggage around some of the practices or the culture of the charismatic church. And yet, you know, I'm still so deeply rooted there and just love these weirdos with my whole heart because I'm entirely them. <laughs> but, you know, but Sarah, I mean, which tradition doesn't have baggage? Yeah. You know, and, and people find solace in different traditions that for other people are, you know, places of baggage, but for other people are places of freedom, too. So, well, that, yes, but that's, that's wonderful to hear. You know, you've mentioned your mom a bunch of times, and I mean, that's, that's getting us thinking here about how you have appropriated the faith in a way that's, I guess, different from your mother. And then we have to go the other generational direction to our own children. And a question that I get an awful lot, and Jared gets too, is from people who they read and they have these experiences of, like you did, like, you know, th- this doesn't make sense anymore. And then you find a new way for things to make sense. And then they say, yeah, this is really great, but I have kids. And I don't really don't know what to do. Like, how how do you? Like, what effect does this transformative process have on what you say to your kids? You know, it's it used to be so much easier. You know, when you had all the answers, and this is just the way that it is. But you're living in this other kind of space. So I don't know. I mean, you, I imagine you've reflected on that as you know we have, but we don't have an answer. We're hoping you do. <laughs> so in in a tweet, yeah, doomed, in a tweet right? length. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that one of the things that I found a lot of hope in, it pertains even with my parents, is that they I've been really um, impressed by how they have evolved with me. That even though they had very different experiences, and even though they didn't fully understand their um, love and constancy, gave me a lot of permission to push really far out into boundaries that used to scare them really badly. And they kept pace with me a lot. And so, they have had transformations and, and changes and you know, their own lives as well that are happening alongside. And so, I think that they would say that they've transformed and evolved a lot as well over the years, which is one of the nice things, right? You're never, you're never done finding out that there's another way to think about something or another way to be. I think that's one of the problems maybe with writing books like my second book out of sorts, because you write this book from this sense of like, well, here's where I've kind of landed. And part of me when I sent it out to the world was wondering, so what in 15 years am I going to want to take back from all of this? That's going to be completely wrong or different. We're sorry to interrupt the podcast, but we want to take just one minute to mention two simple ways to support the work we do with the Bible for Normal People. One, just go to iTunes, rate us, and give us a review, but only if you like us. If you don't, first I would say reconsider your life choices, but two, then just ignore this message completely. Two, if you haven't already, check us out on Patreon, patreon.com front slash the Bible for normal people. There you'll be able to find ways to join the community, contribute to the discussion, and offer your support at various levels. And last but not least, we want to give our deepest thanks to some of the members of our producers group. These folks not only email us feedback, they hop on quarterly calls to give us feedback and have supported us financially. So thanks to Brox Beasley, Nathan Kitchen, Denise Howard, Bob Faby, Josh Levinson, Chrissy Florence, Caleb Needens, Michelle Snyder, Shay Box, and Greg Ballou. We couldn't do what we do without your help. Now back to the podcast. When it came to raising our children, we have four children. We had three and four years. 
and they are now known as our big kids. We used to call them the tinies, but they're not tiny anymore. My eldest is like five foot nine already. So it's just ridiculous. And then we had one little surprise baby a few years ago. And so she's a toddler now, but it has been something that has been one of the places where probably I've relied most heavily on the Holy Spirit, because there has been this sense of we are in uncharted waters. You know, what does it mean to raise your children in the faith in a way that is life-giving and a blessing, and yet also creates the boundaries and security that children often crave? And so, I think that those are things that my husband and I have learned sometimes on the fly, and there's things that we've done that have worked and things that haven't. And we're still very much in in the process of it. I mean, but even when it came to, to scripture, I remember having this moment when I, my eldest was a, just a little toddler and I wasn't in church and we weren't really doing anything in, in terms of that. And I felt kind of guilty about it. My husband was in seminary at the time, which was hilarious. And I remember having this sense of like, oh, I should read the Bible to her. I should read the Bible to her. And so, I went and got this little like, you know, toddler Bible or kid Bible or whatever. And we started off with like all the kid Bible stories that they usually do, you know, like Noah and the Garden of Eden and Jericho. And I remember like my my little precious child looking <laughs> up at me after reading her the story of like Noah and the animals and everybody going in the ark. And she's like, did God kill those people? And just having this sense of like, I don't even know, like we're done. <laughs> I can't even begin <laughs> to, to have these conversations. Yes, I don't know. Like, <laughs> what does that even mean? You know, it's really hard to like, once you begin to see it through that lens of like, oh, wait, Jericho's like massive genocide. That's awesome. About these Canaanites and dashing babies heads against rocks. That's awesome. Yeah, let's let's read that to our children. And so that kind of was me taking a big step back from how am I going to introduce my children to the Bible? And how am I going to introduce them to what this story is and where we begin from? And imperfectly or not, we ended up really, you know, kind of recentering the lens of scripture on the life and teaching and ministry of Jesus. And it took us a while to get to some of those larger stories that maybe most kids would learn right away in Sunday school. We didn't really center that a whole lot in our home, and we still don't. We tend to really center the life of of Jesus and the way that we live that out. One of the things I'm always really thankful for is the fact that Raising children in the faith for me has become a realization that it's more caught than taught, that they see how I live, they see how I interact with scripture, they see how I worship, they see how we engage with justice in the world, we see how we live our faith out, how we embody it, how we pray for people, how we speak about them, how we are, you know, within our home and our family. And then that creates and shapes how then they ask questions or what they do or what they interact with and even what deeply matters to them. One thing I had to relearn really quickly, especially as my children got older, was that I could not assign them my own baggage. Does that make sense? Oh, boy. Say say a little more about what that, maybe some specifics of what that might mean. Well, like I had all this baggage with scripture or with church or with this thing that we would do with kids or, you know, whatever else it is. But that was my baggage, not theirs. And oftentimes they engage in things with a, an innocence that I had to allow them to have and, and not shouldering them with my baggage around institutional religion or around, you know, people who read the Bible like this, you know, <laughs> instead learning to let them take the lead and then answer the question they're actually asking. So when, you know, my kid would come to me and say, well, what, is, what does this mean? And I would launch into this great, big, huge, like, deconstruction. Well, people thought this and this, and this is what was going to happen here, and this matters here. And then, like, my little eight-year-old is looking at me like, that's not, like, literally, I literally was just asking this question. 
know? <laughs> so learning to answer the question they're actually asking, not shouldering them with a lot of baggage that they're not really ready for or is even theirs or necessarily will be theirs at any point. I remember one thing that happened when my one of my children was was quite young. And I have permission to tell this story, by the way. I don't don't tell children stories about my kids without them knowing about it and okaying it. But this one was, I had a lot of big thoughts and feelings about the practice of like manipulating children into becoming Christians. You know, like this idea of like vacation Bible like school. Like the, the fact Sundays. that I've got, I got saved 12 times at camp exactly. when I was a kid. Yeah. You need to ask Jesus into your heart and you know, like all this other kind of stuff. I was like, I'm not going to do a Romans road with my children and we're not doing any of that crap. The whole language around having Jesus in your heart is bogus. And I just was like, I had very strong opinions, like most yeah, really young parents, right? Like when you when you have like so you one, get tired. one or two kids and they're little and you're just like, oh, I know all the things. It's, it's, it's precious, just just absolute gift to everybody. And so my daughter had come to me and and had asked about this, and I was like, no, absolutely not. This is not something we need to do. And I never even thought about it. And then a number of weeks later, we were you know talking in her bedroom, and she came to me and said, you know, mom, I was really scared and upset one night, and so I began to pray, and I and I just said you know what, Jesus, would you just come into my heart? Would you come into my heart and, and, and take out all the, the, the scared and all the sad and all the mad, and I want you there instead? And I was like, damn it. <laughs> Here we are anyway, right? That <laughs> was entirely, you know, how she was interacting with and, and connecting with Jesus, and that was okay. And I didn't need to try to take that from her or remove that. I just, you know, can bless it and make room for it and say, I don't know anything anyway. And so we're we're figuring out as we go along, right? You know, Sarah, what I'm hearing is I think I think a lot of people are going to benefit from from your reflections on that. One one big thing that I'm hearing is to sort of not be a helicopter parent with kids spiritually, but to respect their experiences and maybe even to model that by like you said, not imposing your baggage on them and, and instead modeling a, a, a just a culture in the house, you know, uh, a process that has to be respected, while keeping sort of the f- the focal point on Jesus and not on the Bible per se, on Bible stories, but but on the experience of Jesus, even right. I mean, that's that's that seems to be a big part of this, and and I know speaking from a different background than yours and Jared's that we tend to want to answer these questions. Well, what do you do with your kids? That immediately becomes an intellectual exercise. Well, here are the things that you do. Here's what you teach. Here's this and that. Here's what's important. But sometimes just getting out of the way in a sense and trusting God and letting the spirit sort of just move and doing your best to facilitate that is, I I never hear that kind of talk. I, I don't. Especially not about raising kids. And I think that that's one of the, the things often that we have to unlearn is this, this hype. And, and again, this goes back to my background. So maybe I'm a little bit more hypersensitive to it than, than most. But the nature of control, especially when it comes to our kids, is because oftentimes that's the place of our greatest fear. Mm-hmm. We, we want them to be whole and thriving. We want them to be you know, right with God. We want them to have, have these sorts of things. And, and instead, even that shift which I think goes back to the, this idea that almost everything that we do kind of tips our hand about what we really believe about the nature and character of God. And if you believe that there's a right way and a, and a wrong way, and there's a really, you know, they could miss it and you could lose them, or that there's a formula to follow in order to make sure that they turn out good, because you have this, this view of God that that's how God operates. Whereas when you have, you know, kind of unlearned that and relearned about who God actually is, 
as revealed in, in Scripture and as revealed in Christ, you end up with, I think, a lot more generosity and openness and welcome to those sorts of things. There's also, I, I think that too, I have a tremendous amount of trust, but also a, a tremendous amount of confidence in the love and the graciousness and goodness of God towards my children. And that this is something I get to cooperate with and facilitate and be a part of. And oftentimes they are also teaching me and encountering the Holy Spirit in ways that do not need my permission slip. And so, being able to have some expansiveness and room for how they're encountering God and then creating, I think, hopefully a, a healthy place for them to explore that, while also understanding that kids, you know, like having boundaries and they'll often, you know, go through phases of, well, this is right and this is wrong. But even there, there's room for conversation. It's interesting that we're connecting these dots between the Bible God and parenting and how they seem to be a thread based on our views on one, clearly. I mean, it seems obvious, but our worldview around one of those things, how we think about them, affects how we do the other things. And it it reminds me of, uh, there's a psychologist in California that came out with a book recently on, on parenting, and she, she makes these metaphors of carpenters versus gardeners and how our culture today has created parents who feel pressured into being carpenters. Like, if you just have the right angle and you follow the IKEA instructions, out pops the perfect kid who will make sure and get a job. And our fear of our kids not, quote unquote, being successful is driving this sense that we need to be the carpenter parents. She didn't really say that it's, it's necessarily right or wrong. Um, one or the other, but uh, but being open to the possibility that in a lot of cases, kids thrive in the gardener environment where we garden, where we can nurture an environment and we can do the best we can. But at the end of the day, we don't have control over all the factors of a garden. Uh, we don't have control over the bugs that get in or the, the sunlight or the amount of rain and these things. And so, it is that balance of control. And I just really appreciated that metaphor where when you're dealing with living things, you're dealing with factors you can't always control. And when we think about the Bible and we think about God, it's often we want to be carpenters. We want to know the exact A, B, C, and D that'll get us to E. And that's because of our own fear and seeing how we see God that way. Do we see the Bible that way? Do we parent that way? And how connected they, they can be? And I think maybe us promoting a little bit more gardening in our parenting and in our friendships and in our relationships could maybe maybe do us well. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, that's completely been my experience with where I see them thrive and where I see them be able to be more fully themselves as opposed to little carbon copies of what I think they should be. And being able to even see that, I think one of the the big shifts that people often experience once you've kind of unlearned or deconstructed sort of your, however you were introduced to scripture or to whatever else, the tendency is to push really hard towards the overcorrection. And one of the ways where I see that happen is that you almost become like a fundamentalist for the other side of understanding things like, but either way, your heart still hasn't shifted and changed. And that to me, I really see clearly in how I parent. In particular, that root of needing to be certain of saying, well, this answer was wrong, so now this answer is the right answer. This is the wrong way to introduce kids to the Bible, so now this is the only way to do it. And still, there is that locus of like, I need to white knuckle and control and like you said, like carpenter, like right angle this thing into creating something. And I think that relearning how to parent with an open hand And learning how to parent with a sense of God's peace and love and goodness, but also, I think the word I'm looking for is trust, you know, within the midst of all Mm -hmm. of this is something that I think is a place where then they can begin to thrive and move. You're not just trying to teach them different things than you were taught 
we're trying to oftentimes to teach them how to be a person, how to be human, you know, how to even wrestle with God. It's not that I expect my children never to wrestle with God. I'm sure that there will be things that I'm teaching them right now that they will need to be unpacking with a therapist in 20 years. And there will be things that about the edifice that I have built for them that they will need to tear down. But can I give them really good tools so they don't feel that they're losing themselves and that they're losing God while they're reconstructing? And, and what would that actually look like? Why do you think control, like for parents and their kids, why do you think control is this easy, that's the easy way, that's the default way. And you almost have to retrain yourself to think differently about parenting the way that you're articulating. So, why do you think that is such a default way of looking at your relationship with your children? That's a great question. I think that oftentimes it's rooted in fear. Fear of what? Rooted in our anxieties, perhaps around God or around life, around what constitutes success, but what makes somebody valuable or worthwhile. And usually those things are because that's what we're afraid of, right? Mm. We're afraid of God. We're afraid we don't have value. We're afraid we screwed up. We are afraid that there's no better way to do it. Okay, so let me let me just put it this way and jump in here if, if, if I'm getting this wrong. It seems like we're dumping our own failure to have been transformed mm. onto our kids. Yeah. And I'm pointing a finger at myself right now, by the way. You know, just, I mean, that's, it seems that way that we're, we're not really, we're part of a tribe called this Christian system, but the failure to be on this process of continual transformation, we sort of just dump the system on the kids. And there are things that we're still afraid of that mean a lot to us. And I remember actually when when my kids were all teenagers, and I was lamenting the fact that they are so much like me. (laughs) You know what? I mean, it's like, they're you know, I'm not going to be happy until they're as screwed up as I am, because at least I know that. I know what that looks like, you know, because that's at least a control issue. But I I remember thinking that very, very self-consciously that I've downloaded my stuff onto them. If there's an argument for original sin, there it is. Mm. You know, I just, I I just think, you know, there's so many people out there who are in the midst of parenting young children, not me. I mean, my youngest is 25. I have a granddaughter, though, I can experiment on, which I plan on doing. <laughs> but, you know, how it, it, the question that always comes up, which we can't answer today, but it's, it's something that's always out there, how to be conscious of not doing that. It's not just don't do something else, but don't do this, but do something. Here's the positive vision for what it means to parent Christianly. And I think people keep looking for that. They want answers for that sort of thing. And that means, I think, finding a group of Christians that think that way too, that you can support each other, rather than sort of being the odd person out at church who doesn't do all the Christian-y stuff that you're supposed to be doing. Right. No, absolutely. And I think that that even is a lot of permission for us, because oftentimes, you know, we, we have to embody it. And I, and I think that that's one of the things that sometimes, especially when faith gets super intellectual or very in our head, we've got small people who aren't seeing all of our thoughts and who don't, you know, haven't read all the books that we have been reading or listening to, you know, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Mm-hmm. As one should. Mm-hmm. As one should. And so, then they take their signals from how you are. And that, to me, was a, was a really big shift in how not only did it change and transform how I parent my children, but even how I move through my life, because they have the most up close, right front, you know, kind of view into my life. 
And so I really have become someone that I like to say, if my kids can't see it, then is it actually real in my life? And so if I believe these things about God, if I have, you know, relearned these things, would my children, are they, are they experiencing God's love and, and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, God's goodness and faithfulness? And the gentleness of God, let alone the self-control of God, are they encountering that through how I'm translating that? And one of the ways that I often try when I feel myself getting like clenchy and controlly is it's often really just even a pause with the Holy Spirit of saying, what's motivating me here? What is, what is actually what's happening here? Because when you are fingers clenched and your back is tight and you're getting really shrill and afraid... I think that sometimes just even that breath with the Holy Spirit to say, help me choose love and not fear. Help me to embody this. And then relearning it. Because oftentimes we're reparenting ourselves or relearning these things while we're doing it for them. Mm -hmm. And allowing that space and a lot of humility and a lot of apologies and a lot of laughter, those things all have to be in play at the same time. Well, that's an excellent final word for us today. So, unfortunately, we're coming to the end of our time here, but I think that's a, a great way to end that vision, as Pete talked about, of a lot of laughter, a lot of apologies, a lot of conversations, a lot of two steps forward, one step back with our kids talking about the Bible. So, as we close here, we just would want to give you a minute to, to share how can people find you online and, and maybe talk for a minute about something, a project you have upcoming or something you point people to to keep the conversation going. Oh, that's, I've just enjoyed our conversation so much. I just feel like I would like to listen to both of you talk for a little bit longer on this. So, if you want to do more and just talk about it on the couch yourselves, that would be good too. <laughs> So online, everything for me is pretty much at sarahbessie.com. So that's my speaking schedule and links to both of my books. My first book was Jesus Feminist. My second one, which is probably more relevant for most of your audience, is called Out of Sorts, Making Peace with an Evolving Faith. And then, yeah, everything else is, is pretty much there. That's, that's the jump off point. Excellent. Thank you so much for coming on today, Sarah. It was just a, a really wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. Yeah, great to have you, Sarah. Thank you. Thanks, Pete. Thanks, everyone, so much for listening to this episode of the podcast. We just can't thank you enough for all the support and just the connections that so many of you have made with other people on the same journey. Really appreciate hearing those stories. If you can, check out Sarah's book, Out of Sorts. Pick it up if you enjoyed this conversation and like to take it to the next step. All right, everybody. Thanks. See you next time. See you. Bye. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.